Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Greetings, and welcome to Animal Instinct here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Celia Kutcher, also known as the Food Healer. Welcome to the show. I'm really excited about today's show. We're talking all about the history of the dog. Today's guest is Mary Thurston, cultural anthropologist and former museum curator. Mary specialized in the history of companion animal relationships for over 25 years. Her writings have appeared in both popular magazines such as Good Housekeeping and scholarly publications such as the Journal of the International Society for Companion Animal Studies. Mary was a lead proponent for America's first federal law stipulating a requirement and adoption alternative to euthanasia for military working dogs. She was also a founding board member of the Texas-based nonprofit organization Animal Trustees of Austin. We're going to discuss her first book, The Lost History of the Canine Race, as well as the history of dogs. I can't wait to get started. Hey, Mary, are you there? Hey, Celia, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing today? We're doing just great down here. I'm so jealous. It is so cold in New York. I want to be in Austin, Texas. (laughs) Yeah, we've had the windows and doors open all day. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Thanks a lot. So, I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you so much. I've wanted to do a show about this for a really long time, so I'm really psyched. So, let's get started. Is that okay? Sure, sure. My favorite subject, dogs. Let's do it. Okay, so I've read your book, The Lost History of the Canine Race, and I'm totally fascinated by it. How did you come up with this idea for the book? Well, the the book was the result of a dead-end museum job a little dog that was going to be gassed at the pound and one too many margaritas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess it was about 1986 or 87, um, and i just I just come out of graduate school in museum studies, and I had a dead-end job sitting in a state warehouse in a windowless closet in the back of the warehouse, and I was classifying silverware and crystal goblets from the 19th century awesome. for minimum wage. And uh, anyway, I had just adopted a little dog from our local pound here, and I went out one night for happy hour with some of my friends. And I came home a little tipsy, and I started looking at my dog, and I started thinking, you know, I wonder what this dog's great-great-grandparents were doing and where they were. I wonder what this dog's ancestors 100 years ago were doing. Where were they? Mm -hmm. Um, This dog must have had an ancestor living in the times of the Roman Empire, wonder what they were doing. And I thought to myself, oh, you've had too many margaritas, just go to bed, Mary. (laughs) But when I got up in the morning, the question still stuck with me, and I eventually just went to the public library because I was curious. I wanted to see if I could find an answer. And out of a a whole shelf load of books about dogs, there was nothing addressing this topic. Wow. And so that I just kind of couldn't get it out of my head, and so I started writing a column for a little free publication about pets 
down in Houston, mm-hmm. um, and that eventually morphed into more of a regular writing gig uh, for Dog World Magazine, which is a national publication. And at that point, I just decided to quit catalog- uh, cataloging silverware, so I quit that crummy job in the warehouse Good. and devoted myself to researching uh, dog history. So after writing columns and magazine features for several years, I finally decided I had enough material to start working on a book. That was what I really wanted to do. And so uh, the the book kind of began to take form in 1992, and finally it was published in 1996. Um, but uh, one thing I will tell you about that book is you're probably looking at one of the last books that was done with no internet research. Yeah. All the research was done via correspondence, a lot of hoofing around libraries and museums, and eventually uh, some travel over to England to, to see some things in person in the museums and to meet some people who, quite frankly, they had wonderful pieces of dog history under their belt, but they didn't even have a telephone in their house. Oh, wow. <laughs> So uh, with my mother in tow to carry all the camera equipment, oh, nice. I, I humped it over to England and went on this wonderful journey around the country um, gathering these final bits and pieces of, of material. And even then when I, I sent in the final manuscript to the editor, they didn't want any illustrations, mm-hmm. uh, which I think in hindsight is so funny. And I just disregarded that directive, and I sent them uh, you know, a three-inch thick pile of Xeroxes of wow. illustrations. And they called me and they said, oh, my God, we've got to rebudget the book because it definitely has to have pictures. Yeah, they're and really I, important. <laughs> so I, that's in a short story. That is how, how the book came about, though. It was just kind of a fateful combination of things, um, starting with getting this funny little short-legged dog out of the pound. That's um, funny. And and it's so wonderful today, though, of course, if you go to any bookstore or any library, you'll find all kinds of books about the history of animals totally. um, and the history of dogs in particular. But at the time that book came out, it was a real challenge. Uh, libraries weren't sure where to put it on their bookshelves. Mm. Did it belong in the pet section next to the how to paper train your puppy yeah. dog book, or did it belong in the history section next to some big tome on World War Two? They couldn't decide. Mm. And uh, so anyway, (laughs) you know, kind of in a nutshell, uh, that's how the book got started, though. But, you know, I'm happy. I guess it's coming up 20 years since that book came out. And I'm still hearing from people who have picked it up or found it online somewhere. Um, There was even a college professor who contacted me. He he purchased the book in mass for his students. Nice. Um, it was part of his class curriculum. So I, I'm really happy about that, and, and I'm so happy that the book has been so well-received all these many years. I mean, it's a great book. I'm an avid reader. I read every day, and I read really, really fast. And your book has got so much information in it that it really has slowed me down a bit because I'm just savoring everything that's in there. I mean, I had no idea how complex the history could actually be. Oh, well, good. I'm glad you enjoy it because I, I actually wrote it for everyday people. I didn't want it to be just written by, read by scholarly people. Yeah. Um, I felt that was not, that wasn't the group I, I wanted to tell this story to. Yeah. Um, you know, because my hope that comes out of writing something like that is that Whoever reads it, when they go home and look at their own dog, they have a whole new appreciation for that animal and the journey it's been on through time. So, mm-hmm. 
So I have to ask you this just because we talked about it before, and it's a great story. Can, you, can we talk about the reviews you got for the book when it oh. first came out? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the reviews. <laughs> that is, uh, that's a good story. Well, it, it got very good reviews um, uh, for the most part. The different reviewers for dog magazines, they, they enjoyed the book and recommended it. Um, I got a wonderful review from Kirkus Reviews, which is usually a pretty cranky uh, book review yeah. uh, outlet for the libraries. They don't take a lot of books under their wing, and they called it a sterling tribute to dogs. But then the one review I'm, I'm still proud of to this day um, came out in a Christian fundamentalist newspaper down south. <laughs> And the book reviewer was wrapping up and reviewing the books of the year for 1996, and he says, I'm just going to devote this whole column to the books I don't like. <laughs> they came out in 1996, and he said, the first book I don't like is one about uh, gay couples adopting children. I really don't like that. <laughs> and then the next book I don't like is about mixed-race marriages. I just can't stand that. But the worst book of the year is Mary Thurston's Lost History of the Canine Race. Yay! <laughs> and my mother was so proud. Awesome. She was so proud of me. <laughs> and the man was just absolutely beside himself um, about the book. And I found that so interesting. Uh, and I think one of the things that really got his motor going was um, some discussion I had off and on throughout the book about the effect of institutionalized religion on our relationships ah. with dogs. And then the final punch in the eye, I guess, for him came in the conclusion where I reminded the readers that human beings themselves are animals. Oh, how dare you. And so, I mean, he just burned me at the stake. <laughs> and, I mean, I, I have that review still here in my file. I ought to take it out and actually put it in a frame. Oh, my um, God, I'd frame it and put it on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> because when I read that, I knew I'd done all the right things. Totally. Um, so, yeah, that's the story about the funny review. Thank you for sharing that, because, God, that cracked sure. me up. <laughs> All right, let's get to it. Now we're going to talk about dogs. All right, my first question, because I think it's a really good one, because I don't think everyone knows, is what does anthropology really mean? Well, in a nutshell, anthropology means the study of human beings. Um, and that, that study can take on um, different aspects. That includes the origin of the human species, um, and how we've evolved, not only physically, but intellectually and culturally as well. And particular where dogs are concerned, that really falls under the moniker of the cultural tree of this field of study. Mm. Um, because dogs themselves are not a naturally occurring species. Mm -hmm. They are, in, in a sense, a living artifact created by humans. Oh, cool. If you want to look at it like that, um, you know, um, they are in, in some ways a living tool yeah. that has been fashioned over the millennia. Um, and, you know, still, as much as we know about the origins of our own species, the origin that the, of the dog itself may be even a little more mysterious. Mm. So then how far back in history are dogs really noted? Well, you know, that's a hard question to answer because it's hard to know where the wild progenitor of the dog leaves off and where the actual dog begins. Oh. Um, and what a lot of people don't realize, I think everybody, you know, has heard the, the, the statement that dogs are descended from wolves. 
but we're not talking about 200-pound timber wolves like we see on the blue buffalo dog commercial mm -hmm. leaping over logs in the forest. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about a much smaller animal, almost coyote size. Um, and this, it was called an Asiatic wolf, and it was native to much of southern, what is modern-day Russia, huh. um, Iraq, Iran, Syria, um, through this belt, this southern belt of that continent. And now that uh, species is extinct today, but all the research seems to indicate that the first domesticated forms of dog are descended from that smaller wolf. It's so interesting how much stuff started in that area, too. It is interesting. Uh, you know, of course, that area is so archaeologically rich to begin with because um, there are so many climates uh, throughout that region are conducive to preserving organic materials in archaeological sites. Oh, okay. And so we don't know, um, you know, there may be things that we'll never be able to find out in other areas of the world, um, you know, such as um, tropical areas where all the organic material disappears in the ground yeah, very totally, quickly. Totally. So, you know, it's, it, it's a fascinating thing because in archaeology, you're always finding bits and pieces of the puzzle. And, you know, at the time you find them, you can't necessarily put them together to get the big picture. Mm-hmm. The, the other problem, though, is that for, for generations, archaeologists held no value in finding animal remains mm. in their sites. And I can remember being in graduate school, actually, and going to archaeological sites where I had friends who were doing internships, and the professors were telling them if they found any animal bones, just to toss them in the garbage can. Oh. Or to just to toss them aside in a pile, not to document their location or their situation adjacent to other artifacts they were finding. Um, and there has been a real revolution, I would say, in the last 20 years about that, that way of thinking in the field. Good. And we actually have a whole um, field of study now called archaeozoology uh -huh. or zooarchaeology. I've seen it interchangeable where you have a whole field of study now devoted to the role of animals in anthropology, in human culture, oh, in cool. archaeological sites. And so now those things are being documented, and they are also going back to, um, you know, dog remains, uh, bones and skulls of dogs pulled out of archaeological sites that have just been warehoused in museums and universities for decades mm -hmm. with almost no information attached to them. And they're restudying those remains and finding out things that are very interesting, too. This is really cool. I mean, you must have just been so fascinated when you're doing all this research because it's really... Oh, yeah. Amazing. I mean, I just, you know, there's, there's no greater drug for a researcher than finding out something new. Totally. You know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, you know that's true uh, no matter what branch of anthropology you're in. But, uh, I, you know, it was just amazing when I was doing the book how, you know, what was so interesting to me in a way was how much had been lost through carelessness yeah. or just um, no interest in it to begin with, this myopic vision of our own, our own history as a species being completely separate from all the other animals we interacted with, mm -hmm. and the environment for that matter. I mean, you know, there's a whole new field of study to study the archaeology of the climate wow. um, that they're doing, of course. So, you know, our way of thinking about our own past is expanding, um, really trying to reconstruct the full context 
that we came out of. Cool. Well, Mary, I think we got to take a break right now, so okay. stay tuned for station identification. We'll be back in just one minute. You are listening to It's Cold and Beautiful by Magical Mistakes. It's Steve Jenkins. I'm with Fairway Markets. White Leghorn, Red Wattle, Bourbon Red, Navajo Churro. Well, these aren't names you're likely to hear at a Fairway butcher counter or any other counter today, but before the rise of factory farming, you would have. And at Heritage Foods USA, you still do. Heritage Foods USA exists to promote genetic diversity, small family farms, and a fully traceable food supply. You see, we believe the best way to help a family farmer is to buy from them. And Heritage Foods is honored to represent a network of family farmers and artisanal producers whose work presents an immeasurable gift to our food system and to biodiversity. The meat we celebrate, whether it's Heritage Turkey, Japanese Steaks, Berkshire Pork, or Navajo Churro Lamb Chops is the righteous kind from healthy animals of sound genetics that have been treated humanely and allowed to pursue their natural instincts. It's a simple fact. Animals raised according to this philosophy taste better. And as we like to say, you have to eat them to save them. Visit us at heritagefoodsusa.com for more information. It is so exciting to have this new medium. Hosting After the Jump has been a huge part of me transitioning from being a blogger to somebody who has sort of real important conversations with people in real life. My show, I I kind of describe it as an audio trade magazine. I learn a ton from the guests every week, whether it's, it's restaurants, bars. All the hosts at Heritage all come from different perspectives. Everyone should be listening to this. If you're interested in conservation and and practical approach to renewable food sources, you know, not this big industry. Whether it's history, uh, laws, social policies of food, I think people now take food seriously, and hopefully what's on their plate will become something very special. And I feel that podcasting has a future, giving people information in a format they can really use on the go. We need your support to keep these conversations going. To donate, visit heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. We are students at Girls Prep, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. And we are back. You're listening to Animal Instinct. I'm talking to Mary Thurston all about the history of the dogs, and I'm totally fascinated. All right, Mary, who gets credit for domesticating the first dogs? Uh, everybody and nobody. <laughs> I, you know, um, it, it, the, the going theory right now is that um, wolves were being domesticated or enfolded into human society in varying degrees all around this region I was just describing before the commercial break. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was not at that early age um, a conscious decision on the part of people, this idea that, okay, I'm going to create a dog. Yeah. Um, but you had wolves and other canids 
who are naturally attracted to the activity of humans and the waste that humans generate. So you started having um, early human settlements surrounded or followed by canids as a regular way of life. Mm -hmm. And um, not only did those early animals serve as garbage cleanup, but humans, I think, picked onto the onto the advantages of them uh, as sentries, yeah. um, detecting things that were going on in the in the environment beyond the campsites, and then also um, as assistance indirectly in herding uh, game animals and possibly bringing down game animals. Now, you know, again, that's highly speculative because. Without a written record in these early archaeological sites, it's hard to find evidence of proof uh, that there was an actual interactive, constructive relationship between the two species. Mm -hmm. um, there are some interesting examples of that, though. Just recently, they found the skull of what they are calling a proto-dog, kind of somewhere between a wolf and a dog, huh. dating from about 30,000 years, um, buried in a, in a human-occupied cave, from the end of the end of the ice age, and in the dog's mouth was a very carefully placed piece of mammoth bone. Huh. Uh, it wasn't there by accident. Yeah. So that tells you there was some kind of relationship going on. Totally. Um, but again, you know, when you're looking that early in the record, even the skulls of the wolves themselves naturally have some variables. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to tell the difference. Wow. Now, in, in 1999, we had three geneticists come out with a really groundbreaking paper where they claimed to date dogs, the first dogs, back to 100,000 years. Wow. Um, and they did that excluding all archaeological evidence and instead counting the number of genetic variances on a DNA strand between a modern domestic dog and a wolf. Huh. Um, but, you know, I will tell you that the difference between wolf DNA and the DNA of a chihuahua is less than 1%. Wow. Even now, it's a little bit similar to our own genetics, um, where our DNA is maybe only 1% different from the chimpanzee. Mm -hmm. But that 1% difference can harbor a whole number of changes. Yeah. And domestication itself is an interesting process that begins in the genes where you have a mutated uh, uh, piece of the DNA that tells the cells at a certain point to switch off the growth process. And what domestication is, basically, is a form of arrested development in an animal. Really? And so, in other words, you know, one of the things you have different between the domestic dog and the wild wolf progenitor mm -hmm. is dogs will have soft puppy-like coats. Um, they will have drop ears like a puppy. Uh -huh. um, they will have larger craniums and foreshortened faces like a puppy. And even as adults, they will continue to act like puppies. Um, they'll play and play bite, but they won't bite you to kill you and eat you. Yeah. All of those things are arrested development. Um, and we now know that it has to do with this one genetic allele that switches off a hormone receptor, which tells the cells to stop developing, basically. That's crazy. Yeah, I, it's like... crazy um, how far we've, we've cracked it and what causes it. But, you know, ancient people, they weren't thinking like that. Yeah. Um, if you had an animal that um, performed particularly good to help you on a hunt, 
you were going to reward that annual animal, you might bring that animal inside your own shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, if that animal had puppies, you might selectively nurture those puppies preferentially. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you would have a whole bunch of other semi-wild dogs outside the encampment that would, you know, by today's standards, be feral yeah. at best, um, that you would never consider doing that with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it was kind of a slipshod, haphazard kind of a relationship in those formative periods where people weren't consciously trying to create a hunting companion, but it was just the process of the two species coming together to the benefit of both that led to the creation of a new animal. And when you apply these artificial environmental pressures to an animal, this genetic mutation occurs. Wow. This is so cool. I can't stand it. (laughs) seriously well Well, you know and i will tell you you know our own species itself you could say the same pressures apply to us Mm. because compared to our neanderthal predecessors we exhibit the same arrested (laughs) development um (laughs) physically um you know we retain a much more childlike uh proportions of our skull Mm -hmm. um we're hairless we have arrested development where we don't just leap to attack and kill mode uh, against our fellow man Mm -hmm. hopefully and you could say that we ourselves are domesticated, you know. Yeah. I, I think just when you remove any animal from the natural environment and that selective process, um, this type of change occurs, and it's a change that passes from generation to generation. And that's when you have a true domestic species. It has to be able to be passed from parent to offspring, in other words. It's not the same as just taking a wild animal and taming it. Right, right. Well, you know, it's crazy because, like, in your book, they talk about, like, the dogs becoming hunting companions during, I guess it's, you know, the Romans and during, um, like, around that time. And, like, reading about these dogs who were, you know, like, 200 pounds and six feet tall and, like, taking down a lion or a stag. I mean, it's kind of like, holy crap. Like, how are these our pets now? You know, it sounds like Well, and at the same time, those people were keeping funny little furry animals that performed no useful service at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was insane. It was so funny to see, like, the the extremes. You know, like, every lady had a cute little puppy or, like, a lap dog. And then the guys are out there, like, taking down elephants with one dog. Yeah, it's interesting. I see, uh, you know, some interesting parallels actually as early as ancient Roman and Greek society and in how they felt about dogs Mm -hmm. and who preferred what kinds of dogs. And you almost had a split that early on between men and women and two separate dog fancies going on, for want of a better word, Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, somebody was selectively breeding for little lap dogs with pushed-in faces and long, fluffy hair, Um, and you'll see Roman frescoes of women carrying those dogs around like you see Paris Hilton doing today. Yep. Um, You know, and then at the same time, you had these much more utilitarian breeds, Um, you know, some of them very reminiscent of dogs we have even today. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, and and again, you know, they were not aware of the genetic intricacies of what they were doing, but I think it's not surprising, you know, to deduce that those people said, well, let's take two cute little fluffy dogs and mate them and we'll get more of the same. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like even, I mean, I was amazed, too, that dog shows have been around for as long as they have. I didn't, I honestly had no idea regarding when, like active breeding for certain um, features really started, you know. So seeing a dog show, I think it was, oh, God, I don't remember, 18-something. Well, 18, 1850s is really when they started, but 
um, it was Gregor Mendel, the, fa- the father of modern genetics. It was around 1845. He published his first papers on um, selective breeding um, along genetic lines. He was using fruit flies and sweet peas, a plant, mm-hmm. to demonstrate this, how you could predict the color of offspring based on which two adults you match together and cross-match. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, people in the Victorian age, they immediately started playing God with animals and plants, you know. And um, dogs, they're already so genetically malleable, more malleable than any other, uh, any other animal we deal with. Mm-hmm. And so in very short order, they could really refine certain varieties of dogs and create new breeds out of, you know, general utilitarian types of dogs. And so that's when you see an emergence of a what we call today a dog fancy, a whole hierarchy of quote unquote pure breeds, where the breed, the dogs themselves have been backbred along the same lines, where they're taking a puppy and when it grows up, mating it back to its grandparent uh-huh. to create what in their mind was a pure dog. You know, and right. of course they were emulating what was going on in the royal family at the time. That's funny. And this idea that you you purged impurities out of a species by interbreeding it, making it so impressed <laughs> that, uh, you know, there weren't going to be any surprises. And uh, it's, it's wonderful. Um, there's a branch museum to the British Museum of Natural History just outside of London in the suburbs where there is on display a taxidermy collection of Victorian dog breeds. Oh, wow. And it's so interesting to see this collection. It's at a museum called Tring, T-R-I-N-G. You mm-hmm. can look it up on the web. Um, but even now, over the last hundred years, how much further these quote-unquote pure breeds have continued to change due to highly selective breeding practices. Wow. Um, you know, uh, a champion basset hound a hundred years ago would never make it into the show ring today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a completely different looking dog. So, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, you know, it is a Victorian concept, though, the idea that the more interbred a dog is, the better quality an animal it is. And, of course, you know, we've got pure breeds that are just crippled with all kinds of genetic oh, yeah. problems today. Oh, yeah. And and there is a pushback against that, um, both in the veterinary community and in the dog community, where they're doing more outcrossing. Um, and then, of course, consumers. I think they're not so hung up on the idea that they have to have a pure purebred yeah. dog to have a quality dog. And so it's wonderful to see people going back to shelters and opting for mixed-breed dogs altogether. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that they're doing in the U.K. is the bull terrier has just become a genetic cesspool. And it's just it's not the dog it should be. So what I've heard is that they're actually going to extinct the breed in the U.K., and then once it's gone, they're going to bring back two good, like a bitch and a a sire that are good, and then Mm -hmm. start it up again so that they can just stop with, I mean, all the genetic problems they were having were like severe cases of cancer and really bad behavioral things, and the skull's too small, so the brain's too big, and all that pressure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Sometimes it's best to just wipe the slate and and start fresh if you really are hell-bent on creating a certain kind of dog and uh, of course unfortunately the fancy for years has kind of taken the different approach of trying to patch or repair the DNA Mm -hmm. um, through back breeding and I don't think that's been very successful Um, but you know Britain is very far ahead of us in many ways about how they treat our dogs in that regard yeah seriously it's a a Uh, whole different thing yeah you know and I mean they're 
they're far miles ahead of us. They've outlawed tail docking, ear cropping, you know, all kinds of bizarre things we do do to dogs beyond how we're breeding them. Yeah. So, in your opinion, when do you think the golden age for dogs was or is? Well, I don't know that there ever was a golden age. There were certainly um, societies that were more golden for dogs to live in than others. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and like we talked about, the Romans certainly uh, were crazy about their dogs um, and considered them members of the family and gave them human names and buried them like humans. Mm -hmm. Um, And, again, I think we see a resurgence really in the birth of the modern pet at the last uh, in the last half of the 19th century, uh-huh. where you had a whole middle class emerging that was keeping animals strictly for pleasure and companionship. Yeah. And that meant the animals were living inside, and people were having revelations about their dogs, realizing that um, these were emotional thinking animals, mm-hmm. not, not too much different from themselves in that sense. And whenever you have that kind of epiphany in a population, it's always for the benefit of the dogs, definitely. definitely. But I can't think of any single society in history where there haven't been unwanted dogs, um, dogs living on the street, problems with dog overpopulation, of course. Um, And so, you know, know, I'm still waiting for the day when we have a a beautiful, pure stem-to-stern golden society for dogs. Mm Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, one of the parts in your book that really fascinated me was when you were talking about the Dark Ages and the bubonic plague and the fact that, you know, the plague was affecting everybody, humans, animals alike. But for some reason, the dogs weren't getting it. And so the dog. Yeah. And everybody's like (laughs) freaked out, like devil dog, death dog. And I don't blame them. I mean, if this is the only thing that's surviving or is these packs of dogs, you know, it would be really, really scary. And, And I tell you something, Celia, to my knowledge, and I'm not bragging. I think I'm the only person that's ever put that together. Um, and, you know, I was preparing for that chapter, and I kept reading descriptions of Europe in the middle of the plague, and whole landscapes just laid waste, nobody alive, yeah. and except for packs of dogs running around scavenging on whatever they could find. And I finally asked a veterinary friend of mine, I said, What's with this? You know, the plague was killing the poultry, it killed the cattle, it killed the people. Yeah. Why were the dogs alive? And he finally went and dig, did some digging, and he found in an AVMA journal an old article, a clinical trial of a dozen dogs, somebody did, where they injected them with the plague, and wow. it didn't kill any of the dogs. Wow. And they said the dogs have a unique antibody that protects them from the bubonic plague. And so then... All these descriptions of what was going on in the Middle East, uh, I mean, in the Middle Ages, made sense to me mm-hmm. that that was why you had dogs like you did. And <laughs> recently Googling, I found that that has been cited uh, in a major book on the history of epidemiology, actually. Oh, cool. Citing my book. Um, Yay! So, <laughs> I don't know. People need to do their homework. But, uh, yeah, it's a, a unique aspect of dogs. Um, Dogs are unique, though, in several ways. You know, they, they produce their own vitamin C. Mm-hmm. Really? Um, you know, so, I mean, there are some unique things about dogs uh, that are different from us, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm just like, I, I love talking to you. You have so much information to share. and it's Oh, like, well, I love talking about dogs, that's for sure. I'm, um, I'm bringing you back, girl. you got so much information. We're talking about all kinds of things. <laughs> All right, so for you, what was the most fascinating thing for you when you were researching this book? Well, you know, the process of doing the research itself, like I talked about, that was, 
that was just such a such an exciting thing to be doing. And I think in particular about an old gentleman I met in the middle of nowhere in Wales. Always come back to him when I think about working on that book. Mm. This guy's name was Doggy Hubbard, Hubbard H-U-B-B-A-R-D. <laughs> and he came out of the house in the middle of Wales. Well, first came out this 100-year-old Newfoundland with no teeth in its mouth, and it barked at me. And then following this ancient white dog came out this ancient little old man with white hair, just like the dog. And he proclaimed from the front step of his house, I am the world's greatest expert on dog history. And boy, was he not kidding. And he took me into his house for tea, and he had the largest collection at that time in the world of books published about dogs. Holy cow. Going back to the mid-1500s forward. Whoa. And he was compiling without a computer a complete bibliography of his wow. collection. And then he was going to donate it to the National Library of Wales. Mm-hmm. But he took me upstairs to his bedroom. Ooh. And he said, I want to show you the best. Well, in his bedroom, <laughs> he kept signed first editions. Wow. He started pulling these things. Anyway, he pulled this book um, bound in a, in a furry hide off the shelf wow. and handed it to me, this big book. And I opened it up, and it was a photo scrapbook. And he said, he said you see, and it was all Russian wolfhounds. He said, this was a scrapbook compiled by the last czar of Russia. Oh, wow. And then the last czar of Russia was a camera bug. Oh, my God. You know? And so he compiled this book, this scrapbook of his own dogs, and apparently the czar knew Teddy Roosevelt. Well, Teddy Roosevelt shot an elk in mm-hmm. Yellowstone Park mm-hmm. and sent him the hide. And so this book was bound in the hide of this elk from Yellowstone oh my National God. Park. And here was, <laughs> and I always think of that, you know, and, and holding that book in my lap, and what an incredible, powerful piece of history I had. That's amazing. And that fella, he passed away um, Mm. back in 2001, and I tried to follow up on what happened to his books. Well, they did go in the National Library of Wales. Good. And I asked him, I said, I asked the archivist, I said, do you have a copy of a book by Mary Thurston in that collection? And they said, oh, yes, we have it, and we have all the letters and correspondence she sent, too. Oh, my God. And I was just, I was floored, um, because this guy and I, he and I exchanged nice little cards and notes after I came back to the United States. He had felt that that was worth including in that incredible collection along with the Czar scrapbook. Wow. You know, I can't tell you what that means to somebody like me. Oh, you should be so proud of yourself, girl. That's amazing. (laughs) So when you ask, you know, what my favorite part of doing the book was, I would say all of it. Cool. It's because of the experience of meeting these people and what a journey it was and, you know, how it's taking me to the job I have now, which is so wonderful and totally awesome. Um, you know, none of it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't had one too many margaritas <laughs> and borrowed 50 bucks to get this funny little dog out of the pound. Oh. Uh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, it's something you see through history of uh, the symbolism of dogs as leaders and guides and companions on our own journey through life. And I feel like, uh, you know, my own experience writing this book um, follows very much that same pattern. Um, you know, it's it's been a journey that is continuing through today, 20 years later. So cool. 
It's so cool. Mary, I hate to do this to you, girl. We're out of time. Oh, that's all right, Celia. I'm so glad I could come on today and talk with you a little bit. Oh, this was a blast. And for all you out there, if you're a dog lover, get this book. It's really fascinating, okay? You're going to have to get it on Amazon. However, it's written by Mary Thurston, and it is called The Lost History of the Canine Race. I mean, seriously, dog lovers get this. The photographs are amazing. The information is, I'm fascinated by this book. I can't even tell you. And I really feel honored, Mary, that you took the time to really speak with me because it, your book's amazing. I mean, it oh, really, really Oh, it was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. But thank you so much, and I hope you have a great holiday and all that good stuff. Okay, you too, and I wish everybody well. Thank you very much. I'm Celia Kutcher, known as the Food Healer. You can find Animal Instinct on, where are we on? Let's see, we are on Facebook. You can find foodhealer.com. I'm there too. Also, there's a Facebook page for Food Healer. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Thanks for listening, and take care.